0: Francisco Lopez was rounding up stray horses near San Feliciano Canyon in Southern California. Legend has it that he fell asleep and dreamed that he was drifting in a sea of gold. He woke up hungry, and the story goes, he discovered a wild onion nearby. He pulled one out of the ground, but before he could take a bite, he noticed something glittering in the roots. He held the onion up to the afternoon sun. There were small nuggets of gold clinging to the roots of the onion.
1: For there's gold in them nor hills, there's gold in them nor hills.
0: Six years later, John Sutter found gold at the base of the Sierra Nevada mountains and set off the California Gold Rush. 300,000 people came to California, believing they could mine gold and strike it rich. California is built on speculation, speculating on natural resources that are buried in them thar hills, speculating on a new place for a better life, speculating on what we can build to improve our world. There is something about this place that looks forward, that looks for something that isn't there, that no one else can see. From the Stanford Storytelling Project, this is State of the Human. I'm Yui Lee. Today's show, speculation. California is still full of miners, though they don't mine with pickaxes anymore. Our producer Sam Cargillus decided to cash in on a new gold rush.
2: Stanford is full of people trying to make money in tech, who want to be in tech, or pretend they're in tech. And unless you've been living under a rock, you know that the way to make money in tech right now is by getting into Bitcoin. By the end of 2017, it seemed like everyone from the computer science majors to the football players had caught Bitcoin fever.
3: Yeah, I have Bitcoin, and you should too. I was going out for coffee with my friend and he bought an espresso with Bitcoin.
4: I personally know at least five people who have bought illicit materials off the deep web with Bitcoin.
3: People have hundreds of dollars worth of Bitcoin. Someone almost put the down payment on a Tesla with their Bitcoin.
2: If you know anything about Bitcoin, you know it's an online anonymous cryptocurrency whose early investors have all made tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars with it. I first heard about Bitcoin in a Quartz article from January 2018, which mentioned that a lot of students here at Stanford were already in on it. Sounds pretty great, right? But the other thing you've probably heard about Bitcoin is that buying it is risky. The value is constantly crashing, surging, and then crashing again. Just in the course of reporting this story, the value of one Bitcoin has been as high as $17,000 and as low as about $7,000. As I'm recording this, Bitcoin is valued at $8,572, but it's changing by the second. The smart, the early, and the lucky have made millions of dollars off of Bitcoin, but others have lost their entire life savings. I'm an undergraduate with student loans to pay. I'm not about to stake my finances on a thing that's not only volatile, but that I'm not even sure is real. But unlike normal currencies, there are actually two ways to get Bitcoin. One is just to buy it, the other is to mine it, to pull Bitcoin out of the internet and into your wallet for free. Sort of, it's confusing. If there's any place to learn how to mine Bitcoin, it's here at Stanford. There had to be someone here who could point me toward the entrance of the Bitcoin mines. Fortunately for me, I only had to walk as far as the psychology department basement.
4: Welcome to the Stanford Bitcoin Club. Blockchain platforms event. Thanks, thanks for coming, everyone. Just some announcements. So we're starting some reading groups uh, for you know blockchain crypto economics. Uh,
2: That's Charles Liu, president right of the Stanford Bitcoin so, Club. Beginner, there's snacks. Advanced, there's something about a full node, node work workshop. There are lectures with titles like blockchain like platforms, waves uh, and post chains, and people people in people math we trust. Really and most importantly, there are people who know how to mine Bitcoin.
4: The whole Bitcoin network prints new Bitcoins and it awards them to the miners. You know, every 10 minutes or so, and your chance of getting that Bitcoin reward is proportional to the, like your share of the hash power. I don't know if that makes sense.
2: Not really. Charles talks about Bitcoin like someone trying to get his PhD in it, which he is.
4: Uh, I'm actually planning on doing a PhD in the area to, you know, focus on the fundamental problems behind it.
2: So I found another guy who agreed to take me inside the mine. So, yeah, I guess where, where to begin? Like, so is there a software download?
4: Yeah, so just go to minergate.com. Or Minorgate. I think it's dot com. Let's see. Allow
2: me to introduce my new crypto guru, Taylor Kendall, a freshman at Stanford who's been mining since he was in high school.
4: I said, Mom, Dad, I'm creating currency out of thin air. And last time they checked, <laughs> that's illegal. <laughs> um, so their initial reaction was, when is the FBI going to knock on our door?
2: <laughs> Taylor left his Bitcoin mining rig at his parents' house back in Connecticut. His little brother is running it now, but he was happy to show me how to start mining myself. So I so it just downloaded. Yeah, just so open it up. Open this. I went to this website, Minergate. Oh, so it okay. should
4: be in your applications now. Oh, okay. So you go here.
2: In order to download the mining software called Cryptocurrency GUI Miner version 7.2. Oh, wait.
4: <laughs> should be right there, yeah. Oh, okay.
2: awesome. It was free. It was a little tricky. There are a lot of settings I had to change about my computer, but Taylor walked me through it. I'm so glad okay, you're here. Yep. And before long...
4: All you have to do is uh, click Start Mining, and just click the trackpad.
2: Oh my gosh, right here?
4: Yep. Yep, there you go. Yeah.
2: I just click Start Mining! Yep. Okay. <laughs> wow, wait, so it's, is so it doing it right it, now? It's
4: literally mining right now.
2: <laughs> wait, that took about three minutes. Yeah. But just because it didn't take long to start mining doesn't mean the bucks were flowing in. And
4: you have... Point zero (laughs) zero zero four dollars.
2: I was mining on my laptop, which just doesn't have the computing power to mine more than a few cents a day, tops.
4: If you kept that up, the CPU would kind of like start melting (laughs) and just, you know, be bad news bears for your computers.
2: Taylor and everyone else mining Bitcoin build special, really fast, high performing computers. But there's another limiting factor besides equipment. Bitcoin mining requires a ton of energy. Bitcoin is based on a technology called blockchain. If instead of everyone carrying dollar bills, everyone carried a giant book of bank transactions with their entire account history. And this book has literally everyone else's bank transactions too. And so, if I wanted to go to the grocery store and buy some sushi, instead of giving the clerk $10, I pull out my book and say, look, I, Sam Cargillis, am deducting $10 from my bank account. And then the clerk pulls out her book and goes to her Sam Cargillis page and deducts $10. And then everyone else in the store pulls out their books, goes to their respective Sam Cargillis pages, and each deducts $10. And then people at the dry cleaner next door pull out their books, they go to their Sam Cargillis pages, deduct $10. And then the people at the pizza place across the street, and the people driving by in their cars. And on and on and on. And so with Bitcoin, whenever you buy or sell or mine it, your computer has to interact with literally every other computer that has Bitcoin on it. So the more people who start using Bitcoin means more people that other Bitcoin users have to start interacting with. And all of that takes a lot of power.
4: Mining is definitely not a sustainable thing. It uses an absurd amount of power per transaction.
2: Some estimates say that one Bitcoin transaction uses about the same amount of energy as a single home in the U.S. over nine days. The Bitcoin ecosystem uses more energy than the entire country of Mongolia, more than two times the state of Vermont, or about 150 Stanford campuses. Which seems low until you remember that Stanford has a particle accelerator.
3: Anyone who's mining um, Bitcoin at Stanford right now, Um, is not very savvy.
2: This is Jan Liphard, a professor of bioengineering at Stanford, one of three professors teaching classes on Bitcoin.
3: And the amount of compute power you have to assemble to competitively mine Bitcoin, and your uh, power consumption is so high that unless you live next to a Chinese um, nuclear power plant or a Chinese hydroelectric dam, Um, you have no way of coming out ahead financially because the amount of uh, power you would consume would typically totally dwarfs any profit you can make um, from the actual mining.
2: That is, of course, unless you steal your energy.
3: You'd have to invest in dedicated computer hardware, which is not something like a laptop, and then you'd have to steal your energy, and then you'd wanna do other things, and then you might just break even.
2: And I happen to know of one place where I can get unlimited energy without paying an electricity bill. Stanford University.
5: Cryptocurrency mining. Wednesday, January 24th, 2018. The recent surge in cryptocurrency, i.e. Bitcoin and Ethereum values, has fueled a sharp increase in incidents involving cryptocurrency mining at Stanford. Michael Duff, University's Chief Information Security Officer, explained that Cryptocurrency mining is most lucrative when computing costs are minimized, which unfortunately has led to compromised systems, misused university computing equipment, and personally owned mining devices using campus power.
2: Quoting himself from the Stanford ID Department website is Michael Duff.
5: Hey, I'm Michael Duff, and I've been in the Chief Information Security Officer for a little over four years now.
2: Duff tells me that the university's official policy is that Stanford resources must not be used for personal financial gain.
5: Community members are prohibited from using university resources, including computing equipment, network services, and electricity for cryptocurrency mining activities outside of faculty-sanctioned research and coursework.
2: But that doesn't mean that people aren't doing it.
5: In one case, I know exactly how much they made, and I also know exactly how much computing resources they used.
2: According to Duff, at least one student has been reported to Stanford's Office of Community Standards for high traffic Bitcoin mining.
5: And that matter is still pending, so I won't comment in details. But what I will say is that the amount of resources that they used was far greater than the amount of Bitcoin they received.
2: This is purely theoretical, but if someone was mining on campus, how far could they take it without being detected?
5: We will see the network traffic. We're most concerned where we see it actually um, using a substantial resources. Some clear lines that we we talked about before, I think are very important to reiterate. Mm -hmm. If someone is finding themselves tempted to use resources that are owned by Stanford, like a server, uh, research computing environments, then they've crossed the line.
6: I were to, like, believe these rumors, I would believe that, like, at least 100 rigs are up on campus.
2: This is one student riding that line on campus. We'll call her Natalie. She's a Stanford freshman who's been mining here since her first or second month on campus. She uses a special Bitcoin mining computer, which she went halfsies on with another student. We bought the computer, we bought the
6: monitor. I think the entire setup was like about 800 900 bucks. 900 um, But we split between the two of us. So we anticipated earning, I think, like 100 or so a month. So by that logic, in like a year, we would already break even. And then the market kind of crashed, um, and about like <laughs> two months in, Um, That was a bit of a mess, but we still have it up and going. It's still generating revenue, just like at a slower pace. Half of it is fun and exciting, you know, like, oh, wow, I'm in this, this like, scene, you know, like, it's like, wow, it's exciting. But half of it is also like, I genuinely want to be able to make something. Um, I I pay for my college education, I think that's a lot. And I have that on my mind a
2: lot. I really wanted to catch a sneak peek at this operation, which lives in her mining partner's dorm room, but he declined. When her partner found out that Natalie had talked to me, he advised her to cut off all communications. So the mission to see an actual mining rig didn't go very well. After this enthralling journey and a month of mining on my laptop, my Minergate profile reports that I've made an unconfirmed balance, which sounds a lot like zero. So it turns out, Mining is only worth it if you're willing to invest in equipment, using free power, and you're willing to put your trust in a volatile market. And you're not afraid of getting kicked out of school. Also, the whole thing's a bit of a boys club. Natalie was the only female miner I even heard about on campus, or anywhere. About 94% of Bitcoin's wealth is held by men. I'm officially dragging Minergate out of my laptop. For me, I'm out. And into the trash you go. Despite all this, it does seem like there's still one good practical application of Bitcoin mining.
4: Basically, whenever you use electricity in your computer, almost all of it is converted into heat. And so basically, it's the same thing as having an electric heater.
2: Again, my miner guru, Taylor Kendall.
4: It can probably consistently heat, you know, one to four rooms, depending on how cold it is outside. Sometimes when the door to the room where it's in gets closed, it'll just feel like a sauna in there.
2: But Taylor's not giving up on figuring out new ways to make money on the internet.
4: That is actually a current project of mine, finding a way to uh, be the first of these technologies. I'll let you know if I find it.
2: But as long as it's still sunny down here in Palo Alto, I'll be on the lookout for the next big
0: thing. That story was produced by Sam Cargillis. As more people came to California, It became not only known as a place to seek gold riches, but also for its golden sun. By the late 19th century, California had become known as a sanctuary for good health and longevity. Rumors circulated that the sunny climate and clean air could alleviate illnesses like tuberculosis, which had no cure at the time. The healing powers of California seemed almost miraculous. There was a joke that went,
7: When I left home, I had but one lung, and it was almost gone. I've been in two weeks in Pasadena. I have three lungs, can roll like a descending avalanche, and ate three mules for breakfast.
0: Nowadays, medicine is more than just telling sick people to sit outside. Which is great, especially since the air quality of Southern California is not what it once was. But in some ways medicine hasn't changed much at all.
8: The nationwide flu epidemic, one of the deadliest, as you know, in years. Experts say it's going to get worse before it gets better. Which what? is
2: now considered an epidemic. Every state, except Hawaii, is reporting widespread illness, and the new numbers from the CDC-
0: This flu season, more than 60 million Americans were infected by the flu virus. That's one in five.
7: This morning, the worst flu season in almost a decade is getting deadlier.
0: And it's not just a fever and a runny nose. More than 50,000 people died from the flu this year in
7: the U.S.
0: State of the Human producer Chris Laboa explains that the way we make our flu vaccine is kind of a high-stakes guessing game. But... Some scientists are trying to take the guesswork out.
9: I got the flu this year. You probably got the flu too. More than 60 million Americans got the flu just this year, a fifth of our country. But there's a vaccine for the flu. So why is everyone still getting sick?
8: It works 50% of the time. It's not very good. So even if we get it right, it's not a great vaccine.
9: That's Dr. Julie Parsonette. She's one of the infectious disease experts here at Stanford University and a member of the FDA vaccine panel. Once a year, Dr. Parsonette and the other 11 members of the FDA vaccine panel gather around a U-shaped table in Silver Spring, Maryland. Experts share their data with them, some members of the public weigh in, and there, in that room, the panel forecasts what the coming flu season will bring, and they pick which strains of the flu will go into that year's flu shot.
8: Our job is to listen to what the scientists and the public have to say, and then to make a determination about what, the, what should be done with those vaccines and how they should be used. You know you're making a guess, and you know that they're the best guessers. So you just say, yeah, okay, sounds good.
9: They have to make this guess because the flu, unlike a lot of other viruses, is able to mutate its surface proteins, which are sort of like its packaging, really quickly. All flus are caused by the influenza virus. Normally, when your body's infected with a virus, it will create an immune response so it knows how to fight the virus in the future. But because the flu changes its surface proteins, it makes your body think it's infected with a new virus each time you're infected. It's sort of like the flu is a spy trying to infiltrate your body. And the vaccine is like a dossier of pictures of that spy so that your body knows how to find it, kill it, and keep it out in the future. But, this spy can change its disguise. Each year, the vaccine comes with three or four different pictures of this spy. That is, the three or four different strains of the flu scientists think will be most prevalent in that flu season. And, the reason that they can only pick three or four strains is because of eggs.
8: We're still using eggs for the majority of vaccines.
9: Yep, eggs. To make a flu vaccine for just one strain of the virus, You insert the strain of the virus into a chicken egg. The flu replicates in the egg as if it was your body, then scientists take the virus out of the egg, kill the virus with a UV light, and that, more or less, is your vaccine. The problem is, you can only grow one type of flu virus per egg. Flu vaccine companies use 100 million eggs just for the creation of a four-strain flu vaccine. If we were to add just one more strain, it would take another 25 million eggs which we don't have.
8: There are some other things that go into what they put in the vaccine. One is, will the strain grow in eggs? Some of these strains don't grow well, and the manufacturing company will come out and say, we can't grow this strain that you're interested in doing. We just can't do it. We don't have enough eggs. It won't work.
9: To grow 100 million eggs and incubate the viruses inside them takes about six to nine months, which makes the job of Corey Decker... Head of Pediatric Vaccination at Stanford Hospital, really hard.
10: Because you're making a decision at the end of February for the vaccine that you're going to be administering in September, October, November, December. So there's quite a lag time. Usually the
9: CDC and FDA get it right. And the strains included in the vaccine are in fact the most prevalent. Best case scenario, the flu vaccine works 50% of the time. But sometimes they just get it wrong, which is what happened this year. One of the strains of the flu, called H3N2, mutated during that lag time between choosing the strains, growing them in the eggs, and getting the vaccines to people.
10: It's always nerve-wracking because you always have your fingers crossed that the ones that you choose are the ones that are still going to be circulating in the fall. Sometimes they don't pick the right strain, and it's not necessarily because they didn't do all of their simulations or track their data correctly. They, they are very good at tracking data and looking at projections, um, but the flu mutates.
9: Julie Fogarty is a chemical engineer.
10: And because I'm an engineer, I do the applied side of things. I wanted to manipulate the immune system for good.
9: Fogarty is working to create a universal flu vaccine by taking the guesswork out of the flu.
10: So I use sulfurine protein synthesis, which is probably the coolest thing that I like, the most interesting. So thing you can that take use. the fraction that just crashes out, and you can actually resolubilize it. Um, generally, use something like a nickel column. We can put six histidines on the end. And of then the the monomer. once we have really clean monomer, we can actually try to trimerize it.
9: Basically, Fogarty is turning the flu inside out, putting its subsurface proteins, its guts, on the surface of a different molecule her team made in the lab. And a flu can't change its subsurface proteins the way it can change its surface proteins. If we go back to our spy metaphor, where the flu is a spy trying to get into our body, and the normal vaccine is a picture of the spy, then Fogarty is trying to give us the spy's fingerprint. Meaning that no matter what the spy wears, or however the flu mutates its surface proteins, our body will still know how to identify and fight it. Because a spy can change its disguise, but it can never change its fingerprint,
10: unless it's an actual spy, which it's not. It's a virus. You would take the whole step of having to pick a strain out because it would be one vaccine that everyone would get all the time. There'd be no need to pick the right strain because you would have something that would go after multiple strains. With a lifetime vaccine, we would only
9: have to get the flu shot once, like we do for almost any other type of vaccination we wouldn't have to speculate every year about which variation of the flu might infect millions of people. We'd know we'd be protected. So it wouldn't matter what strain of the flu was even out there. Fogarty's group is just about to start animal trials. They're testing it in ferrets. The NIH and Johnson & Johnson are running their own tests, and the results seem promising. If all goes well, they'll be running these tests in humans in a couple of years. In the meantime, flu researchers and policymakers will have to keep guessing to try to keep you safe. And although they're only guesses, for now, it's the best we've got.
0: That story was produced by Chris Leboa. A lot of what speculation is, is about trying to figure out the things that might harm us and keep us safe from them. While doctors and epidemiologists are at work keeping our bodies safe from the inside, It's the city planners and architects and engineers who endeavor to keep our bodies safe from the outside. There was this dam that was built in Los Angeles in 1926, the St. Francis Dam. It was built to hold two years worth of water for the city, which was a miracle for a place like LA, a metropolis rising up, out of the desert. But the St. Francis Dam did not last for long. Just two years after it came online, the dam sprung a leak. Within hours, it completely failed. 12.4 billion gallons of water broke free, crushing homes, orchards, livestock, people. More than 400 people were killed. The city spent years trying to figure out what caused the St. Francis Dam to fail. And only at the very end of their investigations did the experts realize that the dam had been built on top of a place that was historically prone to landslides. The surveyors and engineers hadn't taken into account the place's history, and therefore couldn't account for its future. The awful feeling of confusion and terror that comes with watching your town slip underwater is something that both producer Claudia Haymack and I experienced last year. We're both from Houston. My brothers and
11: sisters described waters rising to street signs.
0: I was also out of town when Hurricane Harvey struck.
11: My dad swam to work at the hospital.
0: We were shocked to see the devastation of Houston and hear the stories of our families We wanted to know how well people could predict storms in the future and prepare for them. Can people make sure that another Harvey doesn't happen? Claudia has the story.
11: When it happens, there will be wind whipping, the sea rising, a storm surge two times higher than the channel can bear.
1: You can get to 30, 33 feet.
11: The storm surge overtakes the Houston Ship Channel. Water spills into more than 200 nearby chemical plants.
1: 10 to 15 feet of water coming in over those facilities.
11: Flooding into factories making petroleum, diesel gas.
1: Diesel, gasoline, jet fuel. Military grade jet
11: fuel. The nation's economy is literally being washed away.
1: I think it'd be the worst environmental disaster in United States history.
11: The storm is a mortal threat for Houston's people, its wildlife. Its ecosystem. What we're describing is a hurricane that could happen, but hasn't yet. It's a model of a storm created by a team of Houstonians, including Jim Blackburn.
1: I'm Jim Blackburn, I'm an environmental lawyer and a professor in civil and environmental engineering at Rice, and I'm co-director of the SPEED Center.
11: SPEED, that's S-S-P-E-E-D the severe storm prediction, education, and evacuation from Disaster Center. Speed got its start in 2007, the year before Hurricane Ike hit Houston.
1: So I would say Hurricane Ike is really the impetus for the Speed Center developing as it has developed with its focus on hurricanes.
11: Ike caused more than $37 billion in damages, spilled 500,000 gallons of crude oil, and killed eight people. Blackburn and his colleagues at Speed study weather events in Houston and build forecasting models for how they might affect the city. Blackburn's job is basically to predict what the next major storm to hit the greater Houston area will look like. He helps create models to imagine these disasters, to keep homes, cities, and industrial centers above
1: water. We're doing computer modeling, so we can model most any storm and have adequate data to simulate.
11: Blackburn and his team start by gathering lots of data from storms past. From there, Speed builds computer simulations of what those storms would be like if the variables were different. Say, bigger storm surge or more rainfall. So, for instance, Speed built one model by starting with Hurricane Ike and then adding 15% wind speed to it to see how that storm might play out. They use these models to help figure out what recommendations they should make to the city of Houston for it to keep itself safe. But Hurricane Harvey, which hit Houston in 2017, was a game changer. A
3: region of 6.8 million
7: people sheltering in place as the flooding disaster unfolds. The National unfolds. Weather Service already calling the storm unprecedented and beyond anything experienced. Tonight, there have been more than 4,000 high water rescues. The Texas governor now activating all 12,000 members of the National Guard. More than 30,000 people are now expected in shelters.
12: I want to stress that this is a record event. Water is going to places that we did not expect it to go. We are trying our best.
11: Jeff Lindner was the guy live on air all throughout Hurricane Harvey. Lindner is the chief meteorologist of the flood control district of Harris County, which includes Houston.
12: A lot of people, and even including us meteorologists, um, didn't fully understand what three and four feet of rain was going to do because we've never been through it before anywhere anywhere in the nation we've never been through this amount of rain.
11: Lindner has seen a lot in his time as a meteorologist but nothing like Harvey
12: and Harvey is certainly going to be a turning point for most of the residents here it's it's going to be before Harvey and after Harvey because virtually everybody was impacted or know somebody who was impacted in some some way
11: after Harvey. Lindner became a beloved figure of Houston. A crowdfunding campaign was created to send Lindner on a vacation, and it raised $20,000. Lindner wound up donating the money to flood relief, sometimes just knocking on people's doors and giving them cash.
12: Hi, how are you? I'm Jeff. So here's $500 (gasps) to help with your recovery and everything. Oh
2: my goodness, aren't you a sweet man?
11: Unlike Jim Blackburn, who looks way into the future, Lindner's job is to deal with day-to-day, hour-to-hour predictions. When it comes to long-term forecasting, though, Lindner just doesn't think it's all that useful. There's too much uncertainty.
12: The climate modelers are saying, yeah, we're going to see a 10% increase in significant events. But what exactly does that mean? In 50 years, would a Hurricane Harvey produce 58 inches of rain, 61 inches, 75. And somebody who has to go out and design something, that's the the answers they have to know.
11: Lindner is asking for predictions that are more concrete, more certain, more specific.
12: Because the person building a project needs to know, I have to design this project for X number of inches of rain and X number of time. You know, for actual projects to be put into place for climate change, the climate modelers have to start getting a little bit more exact on what they mean.
11: If you plan for really far out with less specificity, sure, you might build a thing that's useful someday, but it means spending a ton of money for something that might not even be needed for a long time.
12: Because the majority of the time, if the climate models are right, and that's assuming they're right, the majority of the time they're gonna sit there whatever projects you put in place and they're not going to have anything to do, right?
11: We don't know when we might need them, especially because so much of Speed's work is speculative.
1: We're not gonna have the luxury of absolute knowledge.
11: Jim Blackburn again, with Speed.
1: We're gonna have to figure out how to make decisions in the absence of perfect information.
11: And it's not just the absence of perfect information. Some people don't want him to use all the information that he does have. What
1: is so difficult about dealing with this issue is when we have denial of climate change at the federal level, we have it in Texas at the state level, we have it in you know, even at the local government level throughout much of this region. And so when you deny science, when you deny something that is coming, we're building obsolete buildings, we're building obsolete roads that will not function during severe rainfall events, and we're building hazardous waste sites that will get overtopped by water.
11: Blackburn says that we shouldn't become paralyzed by uncertainty.
1: And I think that's where we are deficient as engineers, as planners, frankly, as society, in figuring out how to act on imperfect information to make decisions because what we're doing today will last for 50, 100 years.
11: And here is the key difference between Jim Blackburn and Jeff Lindner. Lindner is thinking about Houston now. Blackburn is thinking about Houston over the next 1,500 years, like into the year 3,500. And the way to do that is with long-term fixes. For example, something that speed promotes are coastal barriers. Giant structures along the coast meant to protect the city of Houston from a storm surge. One example of a coastal barrier is a plan called the Ike Dike, which could cost several billions of dollars, but would protect a huge part of Galveston Bay from storm surge for a really long time. Blackburn and his colleagues have worked on cheaper alternatives to protect the bay. Still, funding is an obstacle. And even if these coastal barriers do get built, they might not be needed for years and years. That's money that could get spent on other things we need in the present, like schools. And as it is, forecasters can't even convince Houstonians to make short-term fixes.
1: There was a sign that was up down in the coastal area, south of Houston, that showed if there was a category five storm, the surge would be about 12 feet above the intersection.
11: Basically, a sign warning people that if there's a bad storm, flooding could rise above their cars, above a first floor ceiling.
1: And there was a signpost there right next to the intersection. It was removed after one month because the realtors were complaining that they couldn't sell any houses.
11: Blackburn and Speed are working on creating long-term solutions with financial realities in mind. Jeff Lindner, meanwhile, has the job of keeping people alive now.
12: I know you're scared. I know you feel like in a desperation right now, but know that help is coming.
11: Both Lindner and Blackburn are trying to do more than just make the right predictions. They want their predictions to have influence, whether that means evacuating a certain area tomorrow or building structures that keep Houston above the waves for centuries to come. A storm is approaching Galveston Bay. Winds are raging. The storm surge is over 30 feet. The threat to Houston ranks in the billions of dollars. The lives of more than six million people are at stake. Will the storm hit next year? or in 200 years? And if it's in 200 years, after all of us are gone, do we have the burden of protecting future Houstonians, or should we just let them deal with it?
0: That story was by Claudia Haymack and me. By the 1960s, people were coming to California, to San Francisco specifically, to find not gold, or health, but a homeland. There were hippies in Haight-Ashbury, Allen Ginsberg recited his poem Howl in Golden Gate Park, and on Castro Street, a young camera store owner sought public office.
3: I wear two hats. One is I'm dedicated to the city and district, dedicated to it. But I also realized that symbolically that I am, not just to gay people, but to many other people, I'm the symbol of hope.
0: From his shop in the Castro, Harvey Milk ran a political campaign that would help spark the gay liberation movement. San Francisco had become a place from where LGBTQ people dreamed of a future where they could find acceptance anywhere. Five decades later, Queer narratives are starting to emerge from some unlikely places.
7: Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world.
13: When I was a junior in high school, we read Moby Dick in our English class. Most kids in my class hated it and jumped straight to Sparknotes after a particularly tedious description of a painting in chapter three. But me, I fell in love with the book. I loved Melville's superfluous style of writing, overflowing with long-winded metaphors and biblical allusions.
7: It was a queer sort of place, a gable-ended old house, one side palsied as it was. It stood on a sharp, bleak corner where that tempestuous wind Euraclodon kept up a worse howling than ever it did about poor Paul's tossed craft."
13: I loved how complex and multifaceted the book was. Melville's long tangents occupied entire chapters exploring philosophy, morality, history, religion, scientifically inaccurate marine biology. I identified with the ways Melville described nature. And his endless illusions and tangents reminded me of my own disorderly and somewhat chaotic ways of seeing the world.
7: When all the waves rolled by like scrolls of silver, a silvery jet was seen far in advance of the white bubbles at the bow. Lit up by the moon, it looked celestial, seemed some plumed and glittering god uprising from the sea.
13: And there was something else that I loved, something that really stood out to me.
7: We had thus lain in bed, chatting and napping at short intervals, and Queequeg now and then affectionately throwing his brown-tattooed legs over mine. Moby Dick
13: was super gay.
7: Thus in our heart's honeymoon lay I and Queequeg, a cozy, loving gay. You had almost thought I had been his wife. He pressed his forehead against mine, clasping me round the waist, and said that henceforth we were married.
13: At the time, I was just coming out. And as a queer teenager struggling to find my place in the world, it was powerful to read something gay, especially in my English class. I felt validated. I had something in common with Melville, one of the greatest American authors.
7: I squeezed that sperm till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers' hands in it, mistaking their hands
13: for the gentle globules. Okay, to be fair, my teacher said that sperm here referred to spermaceti, the part of the whale that was rendered into oil. But I had my own suspicions. And there's also the Queequeg-Ishmael relationship, which seemed so homoerotic. When I brought this up in class, my teacher dismissed me immediately, No, Melville is just joking around with us. And besides, you can't speculate about an author's sexuality because we just don't know. We have to presume that Melville was straight. But in the back of our edition of Moby Dick, there were some letters Herman Melville wrote to Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of The Scarlet Letter. If ever, my dear
7: Hawthorne, in the eternal times that are to come, you and I shall sit down in paradise, in some little shady corner by ourselves. And if we shall by any means be able to smuggle a basket of champagne there, I won't believe in a temperance heaven. And if we shall then cross our celestial legs in the celestial grass that is forever tropical, and strike our glasses and heads together, till both musically ring in concert, then, O my dear fellow mortal, How shall we pleasantly discourse of all the things manifold which so now distress us?
13: Their correspondence only seemed to confirm my suspicions. Still, I put it out of my mind. Until I read a book by this guy. I'm Mark Beauregard, and
14: I wrote the novel The Whale, a love story about the relationship between Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville during the time Melville was writing Moby Dick.
13: Okay, so I'm not crazy. Beauregard's book, The Whale, is a novel, a work of fiction, but it's all based on letters, journal entries, textual analysis. So
14: my novel and the things that happen in it um, are, are based very closely and uh, I hope scrupulously on the history that as it actually happened. Um, the things that I've taken liberties with are my interpretations of their conversations and um, you know the, the emotions involved. And actually, I've even attempted to make those as true to life as possible by basing sentiments that they
13: had and thoughts that they expressed on on their own writing. Beauregard attempts to fill the gaps in our collective knowledge of Melville and Hawthorne's relationship. In Beauregard's telling, it's a beautiful, complex, and bittersweet romance. Hawthorne and Melville met at a picnic in the Berkshires uh, in August of 1850, and they immediately hit it off. They were living in a community of writers, mainly from New York, who had summer homes in the Berkshires. They were introduced
14: at a picnic that was initiated by some of their literary friends, and they just had this kismet, they just had this electric meeting right away.
13: Melville, Hawthorne, and about 10 other writers are hiking up nearby Monument Mountain. They get caught in a rainstorm, they find shelter beneath a rock. And during that time, Hawthorne and Melville just got to talking.
14: And we know that their meeting was electric because of what happened immediately afterwards. Hawthorne invited Melville to come spend a few days at his house with him, and this was almost unheard of.
13: Hawthorne was a hermit. His friends saw him on outings, but hardly anyone had ever been to his house where he lived with his wife and kids. He extends an invitation to Melville anyway. The offer. For, for Melville to come visit him was really
14: uh, almost unique in Hawthorne's history, and uh, Melville took him up on it. From there,
13: the two get to know each other. Melville goes into debt to buy a house in the Berkshires and moves his family there, just to be near Hawthorne. Melville was in love with Hawthorne, I'm
14: just going to say it plainly. Um, and of course, it's he never comes out and says, I'm in love with you, but um, all of his letters to Hawthorne are contain er- er- erotic sentiments.
7: Whence come you, Hawthorne? By what right do you drink from my flagon of life? And when I put it to my lips, lo, they are yours and not mine. I feel that the Godhead is broken up like the bread at the supper and that we are the pieces. Hence, this infinite fraternity of feeling. Your heart beats in my ribs and mine in yours and both in God's.
13: Beauregard writes that over the course of the year and a half that Melville spent writing Moby Dick, He had this tempestuous relationship with Hawthorne. They have a relationship that becomes
14: increasingly intimate, but also has a kind of push and pull to it because both of them are married. Um, Hawthorne has just published The Scarlet Letter, which is a, a condemnation of adultery. So not only is homosexuality illegal, but he can't be seen to be having an adulterous relationship with anyone, much less a man.
13: But their relationship
14: continued through the end of writing the book. On the publication of Moby Dick, Melville presents the very first copy published to Hawthorne.
13: I remember this from high school. The dedication reads, quote, in token of my admiration for his genius, this the book is inscribed, inscribed to Nathaniel.
14: Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hawthorne reads it immediately uh, in a couple of days and, and writes Melville a, a very passionate letter about it. Um, and then sort of tragically, Hawthorne can't stand the emotions of it anymore and moves his family away from the Berkshires. And that's the and that's essentially the end of
13: their very intimate relationship. Reading this book brought me back to that moment in English class when I raised my hand. Beauregard is doing what my teacher told me I couldn't do. And he's exploring what so many scholars have been afraid to look into. I spoke with many Melville scholars when I was
14: writing this book and some of them don't like it. there's a sort of an evidentiary case that that um, they're unwilling to make because there's no there's no letter that says I love you dear Nathaniel Hawthorne
13: but Beauregard explains that we shouldn't let
14: this stop us if we only stuck to the things that we can verify factually in terms of the relationship between Hawthorne and Melville or any of their their relationships I think we would miss, almost everything.
13: For Beauregard, asking questions and speculating is such an important part of understanding the past and those who lived it.
14: There's no way of really understanding a person's life without speculating on it. You can't fully uncover anyone's heart and anyone's mind just through evidence. The relationship between Hawthorne and Melville is a great American love story you can understand Moby Dick as a passionate declaration under the influence of Hawthorne to Hawthorne.
0: Yeah, Moby Dick
15: is a great example because that is such a queer text. I mean, it's literally about a sperm whale named Dick.
13: This is Kyla Schuller, a professor of women's and gender studies at Rutgers University.
15: If you do queer studies, especially in 19th century U.S., like Melville's a key figure, Uh, including the Melville-Hawthorne Romance.
13: Schuller says that the work Beauregard is doing, and what I was trying to do in high school, is vital for her entire discipline.
15: Speculation can be an important historical method, you know? It's a kind of history—there are different approaches to history. Some try to view it as a science, where you have definitive proof of every claim, and you're trying to demonstrate once and for all what happened.
13: But not everything is scientifically provable.
15: There's certainly like better interpretations and worse interpretations, but there's never any one definitive account of what happened. So I think that that kind of speculation can be really useful. We're not trying to invent history, but we are trying to explore like the realm of possibility. I think the only way we can learn to really tell stories um, about the non-privileged is through some manner of speculation.
13: Maybe this isn't just about playing detective on the sexuality of dead writers or other historical figures. It's about cultivating a deeper connection with the past.
15: We're not trying to, like, prove our existence over time as much as imagine, like, what does it mean to have ancestors? What should our relationship be to our ancestors?
13: This kind of speculation about who our ancestors might be lets us borrow from the past, from Places we ordinarily might not think to look. For Mark Beauregard, it was Dostoevsky. The reason why I
14: became a writer was uh, actually Dostoevsky. I read The Brothers Karamazov when I was a teenager, and I was raised by a, a minister, and my whole family is either they're just in the church. And Dostoevsky was just astoundingly to me—he was dealing with these same kind of issues, you know, issues of religion and family and fathers and sons. And I was just, I was completely amazed that. You know, as a 17-year-old boy, that there's this old Russian dude uh, who lived 100 years before me who's
13: exactly nailing everything I was thinking and doing it obviously much better than I could. For me, it was Melville. If he could survive in the 19th century as a queer man and produce the great American novel, then I could survive life as a gay teenager in 21st century Los Angeles.
9: In Amsterdam, there lived a maid. Mark well what I do say. In Amsterdam, there lived a maid who was always pinching the sailors' trade. I'll go no more a roving with you, fair maid.
0: That story was by Cameron Tenner. While Cameron was growing up in L.A. trying to figure out his identity, I was trying to figure out mine by coming to Palo Alto. My parents came to the U.S. from Japan when I was seven, hoping to find a new future and better education for my sister and me. And building off of my parents' legacy, I found my way to California because I, like so many other people, was enticed about what the state seemed to promise. Eternal sunshine, beautiful nature, and people building the future. As for my own future, I'm still figuring that out. But here in California, anything seems possible. This episode of State of the Human was produced by Sam Cargillis, Chris Leboa, Claudia Haymack, Cameron Tenner, Noah Chow, Risa Cromer, Sam Greenspan, and me, Yui Lee. Production oversight by Jake Warga, Jackson Roach, Christy Hartman, and Jonah Willingans. State of the Human is a podcast of the Stanford Storytelling Project. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, the Program in Writing of Rhetoric, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. You can find this and every episode of State of the Human through our website, storytelling.stanford.edu.